Hello, I'm Ben Horton, and welcome back to Career at the Crossroads, a Chatham House mini-series on the Undercurrents podcast feed. Over the course of five episodes, all published this week, John Nilsson Wright, a Career Foundation Fellow in the Asia-Pacific Programme at Chatham House, will explore the strategic relations of Korea, asking how the country is seeking to protect its interests in an increasingly contested Pacific region. In this, the third episode of this series, John is joined once more by Jennifer Lind from episode one to interview Nobukatsu Kanahara, a senior advisor to the Asia Group and board member of the National Bureau of Asian Research. They discuss the Republic of Korea's complex relations with its neighbour and sometime rival Japan, and how the two countries can develop cooperation on shared challenges such as North Korea. I hope you enjoy listening. Well, welcome everybody to Career at the Crossroads. My name is John Nilsson Wright. I'm delighted to be here uh, together with my colleague uh, Jennifer Lind, Professor of International Relations at Dartmouth College, and also an Associate Fellow in the Americas Programme. And our guest for our discussion today, Mr. Kanahara Nobukatsu, former Deputy Chief Cabinet Secretary in the Abe Administration, and uh, a well-known strategic thinker, to talk about the question of career in the broader context of regional security. But also, of course, we want to talk a lot about the relationship between Seoul and Tokyo. But I thought I might start, if I may, with this idea of crossroads and a period of transition, because we've heard a lot from the Biden administration about how the world is now, in its words, at an inflection point. And that seems to suggest that we are, we broadly defined both countries in the region and more broadly, the international community as a whole, facing a lot of key changes and the changes that the Biden administration is embracing in its approach to Northeast Asia, particularly doubling down on the importance of alliance relations. We saw that, of course, in the very important two plus two meetings between Secretary of State Blinken, Secretary of Defense Austin, and both their Japanese and their Korean counterparts. And I'd like um, Kanahara-san to ask you whether you feel that your colleagues in government in Japan see this idea of an inflection point from the same perspective as the United States? How closely aligned in terms of their worldview are the Japanese and US governments? Thank you very much for having me today. I think the Washington's thinking is, and Tokyo thinking sound, same wavelength. Simply we believe that the liberal international order that we earned in the 20th century, we had big two wars and Cold War, and we finished that. And now the human rights and democracy and absolute dignity of human being, regardless of skin color, ethnicity, creeds, and religion, we are now here. We are on a flat world order. But we have to say that Asia is a newcomer here. Up to 1980s, apart from India and Japan, all the others are almost dictators. They are developmental dictators, and they were in the free camp, but it is a fake free camp. But in 1986, the Philippines turned to democracy. 1987, Korea turned to democracy, and Taiwan and other ASEAN nations, one by one, in 
1990s, at least the free market-oriented, a new sort of statecraft was born, and many of them are looking to us, and they want to learn what kind of difficulties they have to avoid in the process of democratization. There are many flaws, of course, it's young democracies, but they are very proud young democracies. They do not want any longer to be treated as pupils of democracy. They want to be part of it. We have to help them. And this is where we are. And if the Asia fits in the international liberal order, rule-based international community, this rule-based international community will no longer be American, European thing. It's a truly global thing. We have to make this global. This is our challenge. The big shock for us is China is now going a bit astray from here. They were with us to face Soviets. We helped Chinese, even after Tiananmen, only Japan stood by them. And they, we pushed them into WTO. We believe that the middle class and internet and free speeches will change them. Hui Aoba was talking about democracy with Nakasone in 1980s. But after Lehman shock, they believed that they would surpass the West and they'll be the leader. And then suddenly they changed the minds. This system, the liberal one, from which they take the great benefits, was imposed by the Westerners. We can curve out, China can curve out their own sphere of influence, at least in Asia. It's very wrong. And they don't believe our liberal version of history. They don't feel the joy of freedom. And that was a case shown in Hong Kong. Next target is Taiwan. And this can be brutal. So we have to stop it. To engage China, China is now the big inflection thing is simply shift of power. China is catching up with the United States in economic size by 2030. Amazing, isn't it? United States will be number two. Even Nazi Germany is 30% of US when they fought against Washington. Japan was, Imperial Japan's 10%. China would be bigger than the United States, and they are now challenging this liberal order. So we have to dissuade them from delaying. And for that purpose, the unity of Asia is particularly important. Unfortunately, we don't have NATO here. We don't have a nuclear British, nuclear French, great army, Bundeswehr, and the Turkish army, and Spanish and Italian navy. We don't have that. We have only five allies here. Japan, Korea, Australia, the Philippines, and Thailand. And the Australians are very good friends, but they're far away. This, this is the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> and their, their military force is 6,000 only. Korea has 600,000, a big army. And they're always not within the G10 nations. Their rival is only Russia and Canada. They're competing with, with them. And Russia is now sometimes smaller than Korea. Amazing, isn't it? The vibrant democracy, uh, we need Korea, but uh, now we have to realign the allies, friends in the region, and we have to engage future superpower like India, and we have to, of course, engage Europeans. When the West is united, we could still engage China. But when the West is in disarray, only the US could talk to China on equal footing, and China will not listen to the weak. So this is the moment of inflection. We have to think twice how to engage China and how to protect and enhance our liberal international order in Asia. Well, that is an amazing survey of the current security landscape, the strategic 
landscape that we're looking at. I'd like to follow up on that because you're you're emphasizing again this this notion of a struggle, a competition between liberal democracies and China's desire to remake international order and to increase its power on the global stage as an authoritarian country. So this is a podcast about Korea, and Korea is the the interesting case that doesn't seem to be part of this effort yet, right? So Korea has been very focused on its threat from North Korea, how to manage that. There's people at home who are more dovish, people at home who are more hawkish. So they're having their internal debates very much focused on North Korea. Obviously, they're not ignoring China and have been engaging in very careful diplomacy between the two superpowers. I think this is Korea's fate to to be at that eternal intersection. (laughs) Going back to this theme of crossroads, we're using traffic analogies today, I guess. So they're, they're always trying to figure out where they are between the superpowers. And I'd like to ask you to comment on where Japan sees South Korea in this emerging competition with China and where you would like Korea to be and and what you would like Korea to do? The problem is our image of Korea is we believe objective one. It's a great nation now, 50 million population. It's half of Japan and the number seven to eight global economy, sometimes bigger than even Canada, G7 or Russia, uh, 600,000 army. And they are expanding their air force and the fleets. It's a truly great nation today. And they got democracy in 1987. Now it's a different democracy in Asia. They were number second democracy only after the Philippines. They were in the first wave of democratization just before the end of the Cold War. It's a great nation. And we want them to take a strategic position. They can make a difference here. When Japan, Korea, and the United States are sort of united, the China might catch up with the U.S. soon, but they might have great difficulties to catch up Japan, Korea, plus U.S., and they will never catch up with Japan, Korea, U.S., and India, and Europe. China can never be a global hegemon. They will remain regional hegemon. And with Japan, Korea, U.S., United, we could, by these three, engage Chinese, but this is our thinking. <laughs> this is not Korean thinking. Koreans always say, I was serving as DCM in Seoul. I have many good friends. Professional diplomats and military are very different. They are strategic people. But the politicians and <laughs> the ordinary Koreans have a different idea. They say in Korean, that means when the waiters fight against each other, Shrimps die. <laughs> that, that, that's how they feel. We tell them, you are a big whale today. You are no longer a shrimp. But their self-image is a shrimp. They don't feel that their positioning does not have any impact upon the strategic stability in the region. It's a very wrong idea. They have to take position. One, two. Uh, for them, I have to say, British and Japanese refuse to count out the Chinese emperor. So the British Japanese were never allowed to enter the Forbidden City. <laughs> so we are only merchants. But Koreans are, Vietnamese are very different, in particular Korea, very close to Beijing. They had a very high-ranking seat in the palace. It is a part of Chinese empire, the Korea. And by consequence, Chinese emperor never allowed Koreans to raise a big army. 
Now they have given a good seat in the in the palace, but they were controlled by Beijing. And that's clear. Japan, British, we said bye bye China. <laughs> we are we are we're in the sea, totally free, <laughs> raised army. We, we we lived very freely. But Korea was a part of sort of Chinese empire, and they fear very much that land connected nation with China. They fear so much China. We invaded three times Korea, but China invaded Korea a hundred times. And Korea has a true fear of China and too big, too close, land connected. And thirdly, Koreans believe that, the, in particular, these leftist governments believe that to appease North Koreans to have a sort of the, what they call peace regime in the peninsula, they believe that the absolute necessity is to court China to get their understanding. So to face China militarily is not in their minds. They are very heavily focused upon the peninsula, in particular, this leftist government. It's, it's a generational too. That generation is the generation of the democratization of Korea. The Moon Jae-in's generation, the students who helped the democratization, they saw Gwangju uprising massacre. They know, they remember Chondowan, and they remember the joy of the democracy in 1987. And that's their generation, very much leftist too. All the communists and the, the socialists, they were all in jail up to 1987. We have to remember that. They jumped out from the jail and they started democratization. This is exactly like the situation in Japan in 1945. Communists, socialists were in jail. The Americans came open the door of the jails, they jumped out. They started to do wage the red flag and movements and labor union born in Japan. And that is 1945. And that happened in 1987. And we finished that when the Soviet Union fell. But in Korea, North Korea remains. And for them, domestic Cold War continues. And the leftists are very much leftists. And for them, the appeasing North Korea is number one priority. And that makes them have a very different strategic perspective. And that's a reality. We have to wait a bit more for them to change. Kalahala-san, can I sort of push you on this issue? Because you make yeah, a very right. compelling case, which if I were to summarize it, and correct me if this is wrong, is that the Koreans lack confidence about their ability. If they see themselves as shrimps between whales, they lack the ability to actually take a clear position on these key structural issues, issues of order that you, you know, rightly sort of outlined. And they're also making choices when it comes to North Korea that take priority, which requires them to maintain this more cooperative relationship with China, or at least to avoid being seen to be aligning against China. Right. If you shift the focus a little bit and look at some of the debates over missile deployment, some security analysts in South Korea will mm. say, well, actually, South Korea has been taking a tougher position on China. They're just doing it slightly behind the scenes. So the decision to commit to THAAD deployment is nominally to deal with the challenge of North Korea. But it also aligns quite closely with the American desire to have an additional means of dealing with the ballistic missile threat that is increasingly an issue where China is concerned, that China's missile capacity has to be addressed through THAAD. And even something like the new Southern policy is a way behind the scenes, if you like, for the South Korean government to position itself closer to the United States as part of its Indo-Pacific strategy. So 
Is that an overstatement of what the Korean government is doing? Or do, you, do you see it more critically as essentially not wanting to take sides? Im mm. Young-bak, for example, a conservative president, at that time we had a very shaky leftist government in Tokyo, and Im Young-bak became number one ally in Asia. Mm. And for Obama, the Im Young-bak was the most trusted leader in Asia. It depends upon the spectrum of politics, when the Seoul is very much conservative, the staunch ally of Japan, the United States, they accept hard missiles. When the leftist government takes power, the direction changes 180 degrees. That diselasty is their problem. And when the leftist takes power, they try to loosen the control of Washington, try to please China and make try to engage the North Koreans and that's instinct. And the leftist view is, I have to say, very narrow. They don't take responsibility of the region. They, what they want to do is the peace in the peninsula and reconciliation with the North. And it's very narrowly focused and they don't look beyond. Very quickly, because I, I know Jennifer wants to come in. We've seen a lot of change uh, within the last few weeks in South Korea. We've mm. had important mayoral elections in Busan yeah. and Seoul, and President Moon's popularity is declining, as is often the case for presidents who only serve for one term in South Korea. Mm. What are your expectations if, and it's a big if, because it's a week is a long time in politics anywhere, but it's an eternity in South Korea, what would be your expectations if there were to be a Conservative government in a year's time? That's asking you to look ahead a long way, but I just wonder, do you, would you expect in the current climate for the South Korean government to become more aligned with Japan, to potentially, for example, consider joining Quad and participate in a more active way in some of these... If the conservative, conservative government comes to Seoul, uh, they, they must think about it. As I said, when the Im Young-bak president was there, Korea was number one ally of the United States. <laughs> we were in a very shaky position. And if the government's change, that, that's possible. Generationally, it is the leftist generation. That generation is the students' activist generation in 1980s. They felt the great joy of democratization. They supported the leftists heavily, Kim Dae-jun, Nam Hyun. That's, that's their generation. But their governments, I mean, leftist governments does not do well. They manage the economy very well. And very often they lose the presidency. And the conservatives come back. Im Young-bak came back and Park Geun-hye came back, right? And then this time, the Moon Jae-in. And now the ex-prosecutor, Chief Justice, the prosecutor is very popular now in, in, in Korea. And the conservative might win in in the next elections, and they would change the course. The conservatives does not think the North is a friend. It's very different. They want even forced unification. They want to unify. They don't want to appease the North. They want to unify the North. And they want to be allied with the United States. Of course, to be good with Japan is very difficult for them domestically, but they do understand strategic necessity. But the leftist government doesn't think the same way. And so we have to wait, one, the shift of the government from left to right, two, generational change. Youngsters, 50s, 40s are still very much leftist. 20s, 30s, they support the Korea-US alliance. They don't feel any inferior complex vis-a-vis -vis Japan. Samsung beats on Sony, <laughs> and that's them. And they are, they are very international. They study in the UK, US, speak very good English, very international. So the generational change and the shift of the government might change their course. 
I think you're drawing on some really fascinating themes here. There's themes of change that you're talking about when you're talking about changes in the demographics and in their attitudes. There's also themes of continuity that you were talking about before, about Korea's strategic position being next to this very large neighbor and and also these historical forces of the being part of China's tribute system and the the kind of strategic culture that that gives rise to. So there's a there's a fascinating set of themes here that that are really interesting to explore. I, I want to turn the conversation to the history issues specifically. You've been saying that that Korea should see that it's a very important power that Korea should get more involved and join its liberal cousins in this struggle against creeping authoritarianism and again Chinese desire to create a sphere of influence. This obviously is challenging for a country that as I said and as you said is sitting on very close to China on the the Asian continent that doesn't have the luxury of the moat that Japan has. But then if we add in the historical experience between Japan and South Korea, then obviously this is layers and layers of difficulty. We have this current dispute. Obviously, there's so many different kinds of historical disputes, but the the current tensions are about the court case in South Korea that had the verdict on forced labor. And I wonder if you could speak to that what is Japan's position on that specific case? And what is your thinking on how to resolve this such that the, the two countries can actually partner together? First of all, this is their domestic politics. Leftist wants to accuse the conservatives of being a dog of Japan, you know, the pawn of imperialist Japan, the imperialist United States. That's the way they attack the leftist attack, the conservative. We are, we are instrument of beating the conservatives by the leftists. And they use this argument for that. And they think this is a domestic issue. <laughs> Why is Japan angry? <laughs> that is that is a thinking. We say, this is against the international law. When we finished our disputes in 1965, after their independence, they got independence just after the war. 1948, they formed the governments. 1952, with the San Francisco Peace Treaty, we formally and in theory recognized the independence and gave them independence. And in 1965, we could have a deal and that's normalization between South Korea and Japan there, right? And we have to say that our position was the Korea, when we marched in Korea, because we feared Russians, Russians are coming down, we pushed them back. Thanks to the UK, we could, we could win a war. If we were defeated by the Russians, Korea is a Russian, Russian territory today with the Tsushima Islands, maybe Nagasaki could be a Russian Hong Kong. But thanks to Great Britain, we could push them back. We are in alliance with the UK. And then we annexed the Korean Peninsula. At that time, the population was 30 millions. When we left, it was 25 millions. And two more millions were in Japan. One more million was in Manchuria. One more million was in China as a working force. But when the war started, Army, Navy needed labor force. At that time, there are many Koreans, more than one million in Japan. We asked them to work for the military. It's only after 1944, when the defeat was clear for the Japanese, Japanese mobilized 10 million Japanese, including Koreans and Taiwanese. At that time, I think 50 or 60,000 Koreans were 
moved to Japan for the factories, but many were conscripted inside the Korean Peninsula. And in 1965, we had a deal, and there were salaries to pay for them, because we're defeated in peanuts. <laughs> but this is small amount of money. And we said, don't talk about that any longer, because we can prepare a, a big funds to prepare a POSCO in Pohan. You want an international industrialization, and individual compensation cannot catch up with that. So take a big money and finish all. That was what we proposed. And they said, yes, and that's that's Park Chung-hee. And it's all recorded. So the, the labor issue was solved formally in the form of the normalization treaty, and that was finished. I think we presented $5 billion for them, loans and grants, and they established POSCO. And they, they and Park Chung-hee had great success economically. Nong Hyun said, we, we accepted money, and this was resolved. So the Korean government must pay individually the compensation that he did. Moon Jae-in reopened the issue again, and he used to court. He changed the judges, and judges are very much leftists. <laughs> we don't know anybody. And he said, Japan should pay. And Moon said, it's, it's court decision. It's not my responsibility. <laughs> we say the power balance is if the court makes mistakes, legislative or executive must rectify that. And this is domestic game for them. And we tell them this is international game. Now this time we are engaged. And when the Korean government humiliates my government, okay, Japan could be patient, but don't touch my people's money. This is very different. If you touch my people's money, the government is engaged and fight against you. But they didn't take this seriously. And now it's a serious matter for them. We don't do anything. Until they simply rectify these mistakes, we can't move. This is different, bit different from comfort women issue. Women issue. Comfort women issue, Japan moved very fast, even faster than the Korean government, simply because this is humanitarian issue. Many thought that. Hmm? Let, let me ask you, you gave such a good survey of the legal issues dating back to the 1965 treaty. And, and again, talking about what are the, the legal responsibilities? And I, th- I think you're really right in highlighting that this is a very emotional domestic political issue in South mm-hmm. Korea, just as in, in any country, when there are survivors of historical trauma in Japan, there's the veterans community, there's the survivors of the atomic bombings, right? So, so any time that there are survivors of these kinds of traumas, it's a very significant domestic political issue. Let me just also ask, beyond that, South Korea and Japan are countries that you're saying it would be great if they could work together. And they are part of a community of of liberal countries that, you know, actually Germany was quite a leader in this. The United States, Canada, Britain, Australia, other countries have been spending more time examining the wrongs that they've done to their own people, for example, against indigenous peoples. So, so one of these growing norms of this liberal order that you're talking about is that we actually do self-reflect on what we have done to ourselves, to our own people, and then also in many cases to our partners today. And so what can Japan do to move in that direction? I, I mean, believe me, I know Japan's already done a lot, but is there a way beyond just looking at this legalistically and to we, think what could Japan do? 
we do not want to the fight the history issues with, with South Koreans at all. The Prime Minister Abe was successful to reorienting our history debates inside Japan. It was sort of the very senior imperial aged people versus young students in 1960s, 70s. That's basically Japan's history debates. The empire was right or wrong or new liberalism in the 60s, 90s. And that it's over in Japan. Now, the Japanese youngsters are very different. They, they are simply, they don't know Cold War. They don't know Pacific War. And they believe that the bad thing is a bad thing. Colonization is a very bad thing. And the racial discrimination is a very bad thing. And many bad things were committed by the precursors. And Japan was among them. We did bad, very bad things. They have absolutely no sense of justifying that, the Japanese youngsters. But they want to be proud because we believe that the human rights, democracy, human dignity, and they believe that this is not only Western. We had that before. We are calling it a different name. The Westerners call it truth, love, and God. We simply call it truth and Buddha. <laughs> That's the same thing. So the youngsters are very different. Abbasan hit that chord. Okay, bad thing is bad thing, but let's be proud. We are born after the war. We live with this principle, and let's go with it. And that's New Japan. We're headed in that direction. So the history issue is now domestically over. Korean history issues are in their own domestic contexts. And they accuse their conservatives. You are the pawns of Japanese imperialists. Our response is simply, we are no longer imperialists. I'm sorry, we changed. We're waiting for Korea to stand up hand in hand to enhance this the new liberal order in Asia. And they, they are capable. And please don't fight domestically. And please don't drag us in that. In Japan, it's over. But in Korea, it's a very old-fashioned history issue. Imperialist Japan, imperialist <laughs> conservatives, porn of Chondowan or Park Chung-hee dictators, and the leftists are fighting for democracy. And that history issue framing was Japan's framing. We did that in 1960s, 70s. We outgrew of it. But Korea is fighting still in that in that way. And they bring us in their battlefields. And sometimes that angers Japanese very much, in particular the senior ones. I have to say that youngsters in Japan are not very much concerned about it. Still, millions are going back and forth between Korea and Japan. The tourists, youngsters, and many Korean students want to find a job in Tokyo. And this is very different generation. It's it's there. And media tries to exaggerate a bit the feuds of history issues between Seoul and Tokyo, but it's only a part of Japan-Korean relationship. Kaihao-san, you make a very powerful argument for this question of how generational change is affecting Japan's attitude towards the outside world. And you also have told us in very clear terms about the persistence of internal political divisions within South Korea. We don't have a great deal of time left, but I wanted to sort of bring us back to this issue of internal divisions and circle back to the question of China. Because in balancing order and values, there seems to be a debate going on at present within the Japanese government. We've seen younger members of the Diet and even some older ones working across party to talk about developing a more robust approach towards China, citing it for its human rights abuses in Xinjiang, in Hong Kong, talking about changing legislation to allow the self-defense forces to be deployed in the event of a crisis over the Sankakus, 
and at highlighting the importance of Taiwan. And you have people like Defence Minister Kishi associated with a tougher position on Taiwan. But some would also point to a hesitation on the part of other older politicians like Secretary General Nikai, who still seem to be emphasising the importance of dialogue with China. Earlier, you mentioned Tiananmen, and it was striking that at the time of Tiananmen, it was, of course, the Japanese government, again, under then Prime Minister Kaifu, who argued for maintaining that dialogue and not taking a strident position on the human rights issue. So what has changed between then and now? And when it comes to that balance within Japan, both within the cabinet and within the diet, has there been a real generational shift which now says that Japan will take a strong position on human rights, or for that matter, on Myanmar, in a way that brings it much closer to the United States and the new Biden administration's focus on human rights? Because the rhetoric is there, but some of us are wondering how far substantially Japan and the United States are aligned on this critical issue. The senior people, and they worked really hard to engage China in 1970s. And at that time, China was friend and Russia was our enemy. And their thinking is there. We, we brought China into the West and tried to, to keep China in the West. That's their thinking. And they, they are now senior enough, but they, they can't forget that day. Youngsters and the, the me below, I'm not young, but 60 years below, we see China suddenly very big, almost as big as the United States. And they are trying to bully everybody in the, around the region. And they want to simply take back what they lost in the Qing dynasty. They think modern China for them, the image is the last days of Qing. Qing is not China, it's, it's Manchu's Qing. So many other tribes were there, Tibetans, Uyghurs, and Mongols. And Mao conquered everybody and make one China, a communist China. Communists could never produce identity. Russians broke out. Yugos, Yugoslavia broke out. And China is, is following the same, same fate. So they are now incorporating ethnic minorities in one thing. And this is ugly. The communism is now dead. So they are pushing forward the hand nationalism that angers inner Mongolians, Tibetans, and Uyghurs. These things are very ugly. Hong Kong's freedom was put to an end suddenly. And this is a big warning shot for everybody in the region. And something is going very badly in China. That image of young Japanese. So there are, of course, some generational, generational things. Old politicians don't change very quickly the minds, you know. The old men don't, don't change quickly their minds. But the image of China is now changing drastically inside Japan. Among the key issue is we're warning Americans that what's, something is going badly in China for 20 years. Washington didn't listen to us very carefully. Bye bye, Japan. Hello, China. <laughs> this was Wall Street, and this was a bit Washington. And these days, Towards the end of Obama administration, Americans started to think very seriously, something's very bad with China. And now they are taking stance. And now they are asking Japan, are you truly ready to be with us? And this is where we are. We have to make efforts. I have said a word upon Myanmar. We don't like a double standard. We tried to quote China, I'm complaining about human rights. We bully members, you know, the big bog them down, say punishing Myanmar. And this is very bad. Everybody knows that. The Westerners don't punish the big ones. 
and punch on the small ones. And thus we can alienate these middle powers. And we, of course, the coup can never be accepted. We have to complain a lot. So we have to show displeasure. But punishing and forgetting is a very bad tactics. If we punish them, we have to engage them. And it's very difficult. The military cannot make compromise. In particular, Myanmar army is the grandson of Japanese Imperial Army. <laughs> we know who they are. It's brutal. Myanmar's are fighters. They are Mongolian bloods. The same that they are our kings. <laughs> we know their mentality. It's, it's, a, it's very difficult, but we have to engage them somehow. Otherwise, China will come in, take them out from the, from the West again. What do you think in, in Japan of the future for Prime Minister Suga? Do we think that his leadership can survive beyond the autumn? And who in Japan would be the, the next generation of leaders? Do you see Mr. Kono emerging? And, and what do you think his leadership would look like for Japan? Suga-san stepped into Abe-san's shoes and he served eight years as chief cabinet secretary coordination minister for Abe, so he knows the details of managing the government. But he, it is unfortunate that he had only one year as the president of the party and the prime minister too. So he has to go for the elections this year. And this is mandatory, he can't avoid that. And the corona is still heavy here. The vaccination is also slow too. It's not as fast as in, as in UK. So he has to fight against COVID and he has to find a good time for the elections. And he has to answer the questions whether he's, how he is holding the Olympic game in Tokyo. And this affects very much his political fate. And he has to be skillful. But Suga-san's government is, this system is British system, not like American system. So he needs supporters in the diets. Three big factions are supporting him, Abe, he commands 100 in diets, also 50 in diets, and Nikai commands 50. He has 200 army inside diets. It's not very weak. A very good point is our oppositions are very weak. They cannot be popular. Suga-san's popularity is going down, going up and down with because of Corona. But our opposition's popularity, the main opposition is the Democrats, 8% all the time. Suga is the least popular today, but he, he still enjoys 40% of support. So he has a very weak opposition. And so when the party does not destroy the, his leadership, he's okay. And it happens only when he loses many seats in the elections. So that's, that's, he has to fight hard for that. Then he, he would survive the elections, continue to rule. Next generation leaders are, of course, they are waiting a long time in the in the bench and <laughs> the corner signs there. And the corner signs, of course, one of the leaders. And the Montegi-san, foreign minister, Kato-san, chief cabinet secretary. Kishida-san is still waiting for a, his, his, his turn. And many are waiting in the lists. But you can't kill the king. King is ruling, fighting against COVID. And it is not, it is not samurai spirit. You have to support him. But only when he loses badly in the elections, something bad could happen. But I don't think that would happen very easily because the position is very weak. Well, Kanahara-san, that's a, probably a good point at which to end. It's a useful reminder, I think, of how the complex international relations of the region is so often derailed, if we can go back to our notion of roads and connectivity, derailed by unexpected events, 
and the interconnection between domestic politics and foreign policy. I think you've demonstrated in your remarks about the way that affects the relationship between Korea and Japan remains really important. And so I think it's been a really helpful complement to our discussion to appreciate those historical and political questions. So thank you very much for sharing your view. So frankly, it's been a really fascinating discussion. And I think it once again reminds us of how much change is happening in the region and how much leadership capacity Japan has. You started at the beginning by saying that at this inflection point, it's not one country's responsibility alone to manage these affairs. And I think your description has reminded us of how much capacity and impact Japan has had alongside uh, South Korea. Thank you again, Kanaela-san, for a fascinating discussion. Thank you, John. Thank you, Thank John. You, Thanks very much for listening to this bonus episode of Undercurrents. There are two more episodes coming up in this series, and we'll be back with our regular programming very soon after that. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with the work of Chatham House on our website, www.chathamhouse.org, or follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. Till next time, thanks for joining us.